Oh, bliss it was to be alive that dawn, but to be young was very heaven in Moscow in the early 2000s. Look, forgive my wrangling of the famous Wordsworth phrase, but it sums up the sentiments of the man I'll introduce you to now. A young man undergoing some profound re-evaluation. And of course, he's far from alone. Many travellers have been drawn over the years to Russia to explore the depth of history, uh, the splendours of this rich culture, from the palaces in St. Petersburg to Red Square in Moscow and to the city's magnificent Trechikov Gallery with an incredible span of art, including a full wall of gold-rimmed portraits of authority figures in Russia, a cornucopia of autocrats, really, from Nicholas I to Joseph Stalin. Now, we're not here today to glorify that. Maybe to add context to events in Ukraine, though, and to tap into the incredible rethinking underway among lots of people there and elsewhere, between the generations too, about deep undercurrents in Russian life because those glorious freedoms so on display in the last 25 to 30 years are surely gone. Ben Judas, now a senior fellow and policy analyst at the Atlantic Council think tank in Moscow, who wrote a rather anguished article for the online journal unheard.com this week. The Russia we have lost. Putin has crushed a generation's dreams. I'll let him explain. Welcome to the program, Ben. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. You wrote that living in Moscow back in the 2000s, one never realised what a golden era it was when things were sort of more or less open and um, predictable. Uh, Take us back to that time, if you would, please. It obviously, by the sound of your writing, was just a glorious moment. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, to be, um, you know, of a certain age in... Moscow in the 2000s. It was a moment where, you know, this city had finally kind of stabilised after the sort of chaos of the 1990s, had begun to become wealthy, had begun to become elegant, and had become a really dynamic place full of bars and cafes and newspapers and magazines, even though there was censorship around them and there were banned topics, were still able to do journalism and be creative. It was a place of art. It was a place of uh, rising culture and really rising expectations. And as a sort of young journalist or analyst, you could spend the evening in a sort of swirl of like Russian liberals and uh, dissidents and, uh, you know, sort of maybe more liberal-minded uh, officials. And you could come and go from this place very easily, very casually. You know, it was an easy jet destination from uh, London. It wasn't difficult to get visas. And it was one of the, you know, it was a moment when it wasn't just Russia that was easily accessible. China was also easily accessible. Certainly isn't now. Syria was easily accessible. And there was great optimism about a whole variety of other places, about Turkey, about uh, Egypt, about a whole score of uh, countries in the region. So I wrote this piece sort of about how, at the time, none of us realised that we were living through a sort of low-key golden era where things were more or less okay and things were more or less open and you could just casually go from London to Moscow and back again and and then go and spend time in Beijing easily and uh, and spend you know time in places like Aleppo or in Damascus or in in Beirut which are now much more difficult if not impossible to really access as they were. Well, 
Just going back to Moscow, um, did the people around you, the young Russians then, did they sense they were in a fragile moment or not? Had they started to really let their guard down? Well, there were always people, often whom had experienced like the harsh end of Soviet oppression, that saw Vladimir Putin as a man who was going to try and bring back totalitarianism in one form or another or just eventually. You would always meet people like that who would warn of it. But for people, you know, my, my age, you know, then in their tw- then in their 20s, now in their, um, you know, th- 30s, people who didn't remember um, totalitarianism under the Soviet Union and didn't don't remember it ending and only can begin to remember life in the, you know, in the, ni- in the 90s, um, that was seen as a bit anachronistic and it was believed that the way the world had been trending and the way the world had been developing, um, coming online, opening up, uh, westernising, that was the way that things were going to uh, continue. And that kind of sense of confidence um, continued in Moscow amongst the middle class and amongst the sort of creative classes. And so it reached a sort of high watermark in the protests of 2011 and 2012 against a rigged uh, election. And then, you know, that really sort of hit the rocks of uh, Putin's repression. And ever since then, set in motion a whole series of events that... uh, led, you know, by one way or another to the situation we're in uh, now. Well, in fact, you, you called some of the millennials um, that you met Putin's Decembrists. That was the uh, intellectual radicals and the artists and, well, really the military too, who in the in the 19th century tried to intervene. I mean, there were many of these, I might add, people from the elites trying to overthrow the existing order, if you, if you look at Russian history. Um, and and they, all, they end up being executed or sent off to Siberia. Now, the version these days... Um, those a lot of those people are scrambling to get out of Russia, aren't they? And this week we've seen Putin's own language really ramp up against them, calling them traitors. Um, and it, I mean, this could be for a range of reasons. But are you hearing from some of these people with whom you made friends? Well, of course. And you know, I'll tell you a little bit more about why I wrote about the Decemberists in that essay, which is at the time when I was travelling around uh, Russia and uh, living in Russia, I became always obsessed with this 19th century movement where a sort of group uh, of officers had uh, risen up um, against the newly uh, sort of arrived Tsar uh, Nicholas I. You know, they'd spent time in Europe, they'd experienced the Enlightenment. Many of them had crossed the continent during the Napoleonic Wars, which they'd returned victorious, and they rose up for sort of something like a constitutional monarchy to kind of bring Russia to where they felt it should be in its political development, close to the way things were in England or in um, or in France at that time. And this hit the rocks of Nicholas I, of the Tsar, who had initially seemed perhaps open-minded towards liberalism and revealed himself to be a, a dark and ferocious uh, conservative. And this generation, you know, really the you know, startling generation of thinkers, of, uh, of writers, of, of minds that could have turned Russia 
So it's talented. something radically different that could have pushed Russia in a completely different direction were essentially exiled to Siberia. And now looking back on it, it almost feels like a sort of premonition, this obsession I had with this phenomenon, because that generation of, you know, the Moscow that's very dear to my heart at that time has largely uh, already, uh, before the events of the recent uh, weeks, begun to heavily emigrate and leave the country to London, to Berlin, to Tel Aviv, to uh, the United States. And in the last few weeks, there's been a stampede out of Russia. And almost everyone I know now has uh, fled the country in the last few weeks, really fearing that the laws that have come in, the speeches that Putin is making, the sort of Orwellian uh, situation of how it's even illegal to refer to what's happening as a war. It must be referred to as a special military uh, operation in public and on social media has sort of terrified them into feeling that a sort of new dark era, maybe as bad as Stalinism, is coming. Well, in fact, you do put in your... Um in your essay, why did I refuse to see all this at the Trechikov Gallery? Now, the Trechikov Gallery is this beautiful gallery because I'm fortunate enough, I feel so fortunate now <laughs> to have visited it in uh, 2019, um, where you do see sort of the whole of Russian history laid out. And as you say, the whole of Russian history is laid out in wall-sized, gold-rimmed portraits of autocrats, Nicholas I to Joseph Stalin, each saying, there is something both very fragile but very durable about repression in this state. Um, it, it's a sort of, uh, well, it, it, it's a shocking sort of conclusion to draw, isn't it? And at the time, you know, I was working for you know, think tanks and for sort of newspapers, but mostly for think tanks, and the dominant mood in political science was that we shouldn't be looking at a lot of the history and a lot of this sort of institutional continuity uh, going back in these mechanisms of repression. And that, in fact, Russia, I remember it was very popular to say, was a normal middle-income country that had the same amount of corruption, the same amount of repression, the same amount of crime and social problems as a country of that uh, uh, wealth. And I'm left now, looking back at the conversations that we used to have and the research papers we used to draw out, thinking how sort of intellectually sort of arid and barren it is, the work that was being done, trying to look at the world exclusively through numbers and exclusively through, through data sets. And it, all it, you need to do is really take a walk through the Trachikov Gallery and look at those giant uh, gold-rimmed um, portraits of czars and commissars and autocrats and to listen to what they're saying, which is... You know, this is a country whose institutions have again and again and again uh, consolidated into uh, autocracy, an autocracy that's very fragile because suddenly leaders and empires can collapse overnight, but is at the same time very durable and it keeps coming back. And so what I was trying to express in that uh, essay was that actually the political science that was mostly being done um, around that time was missing something very, very important that you did not need to be a political scientist to realise.
Well, I, I mean, there's some very interesting um, writing on this at the moment uh, about, for instance, the sort of almost unknown unknowns that the West um, had about Russia, the Russian soul. And I use the word advisedly because there's very little analysis of religion um, in, in a lot of those political science analyses that you're describing. Um, even going back, as I saw one recently, um, uh, discussing how wrong the West got Solzhenitsyn, the man they gave the Nobel Prize to, the great sort of dissident, Soviet dissident, who came, uh, who came to the West and who didn't like the West, actually. But he basically said, if communism goes, don't think you're going to get liberalism. He said that, but the West didn't want to hear because they were so obsessed with his anti-Soviet analysis, they didn't. They took their eyes off what else he was saying. Uh, well, yes, I think that it was a real um, problem for Western analysts, also for Western culture, and like still in Washington, people can often accidentally refer to uh, Russia or Russians as the Soviet Union or uh, uh, Soviets, including the Secretary of Defense, to my uh, surprise. I think that's a, that's a kind of very shade and straightjacketed way of, uh, uh, of looking at things. And I think you really do need to look at the breadth of uh, Russian history to understand what's going on and what those kind of forces animating uh, Russian society. And I'll tell you a little bit about uh, something that, uh, you know, I've been thinking about here, which is, you know, when you look back at Solzhenitsyn and a figure like that, I'm left really with two thoughts. One is that after the totalitarian experience, you know, Russia you know, remained and really was a kind of scarred society, very, very ill at ease with itself, very, very haunted. And those cultural scars of specific people, um, you know, including in, in, in Putin, turned out to be very, very damaging for the course of Russian history, uh, to Russian history today. So that's one thing that I've been thinking about, that those scars that you see in a figure like Solzhenitsyn have really come back to haunt us. Uh, and scars both the Soviet experience and its collapse. And the other thing is, if you look at a figure like Solzhenitsyn, it's his nationalism that was never taken seriously enough. Like Solzhenitsyn was a prolific writer, and I would like to add like a really, real sort of bilious uh, anti-Semite. And already in the 90s, he was had a talk show, he was sort of spewing uh, venom about sort of Jews and foreigners and Westerners and McDonald's. But more importantly, he had uh, written a plan published in the national newspapers about how to restore Russia. And he specified, you know, if we want to rebuild Russia, what we need is Russia... Northern Kazakhstan, uh, which is largely uh, you know, Russian-speaking and Slavic, uh, Belarus and uh, Ukraine. We need those territories, and it's around that that we can rebuild uh, uh, Russia to be a kind of great power again. And like that tendency was not taken seriously enough by Western politicians and Western thinkers, uh, even though Putin had, a, for a long time now, come to sound like that. And we should remember that kind of Putin developed a relationship with uh, Solzhenitsyn. Putin would go and see him and would sit at his feet and would talk to him about the borders of the country and what Russia needed. And I would very much expect that the question of Ukraine formed very much part of those conversations.
Well, look, before we, you know, before we do descend into complete pessimism about it, a lot of these people you're describing who were enjoying Moscow with you and who have now left, um, they have tasted the liberations that the West offered. So may they, might they be some sort of force that could, despite what you're saying, um, is it inevitable is really what I'm asking, or might this be the last gasp of it for a while anyway? Well, I really want to stress again is that I do feel that my kind of generation of uh, Russians, like men in Moscow, but also men in other cities in St. Petersburg, in Irkutsk, in Novosibirsk, really an incredibly talented, sophisticated, elegant, brave generation of people that Putin never gave a chance. But Putin, who's been in power for, you know, almost 23 years, never let Russia's millennials come anywhere near uh, power, never let them have anything close to influence over Russian society, and has now destroyed the world that they were kind of thriving in and exploring and dreaming about before they had a, a chance to in any way. And one of the things I feel very sad about is you know, in Washington right now, there are officials in government thinking, well, maybe we're going to going to sort of push them towards a sort of 1917 with, you know, a war gone badly, big sanctions coming in, totterings are maybe, maybe, maybe there'll be some revolutionary moment on the streets. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that something's collapsing in Russia right now much faster than Putin's government, which I don't think is collapsing at the moment, even though there are cracks in it. And that is that sort of liberal sociology. As I said you know, most of those people have fled. Most of that world is gone. And that was a world that produced a protest mo- movement. It's a world that produced a sort of dissident opposition hero, like uh, such as Alexei Navalny, who's a hero to many uh, Russians at the Kremlin. He's a nationalist, uh, mind you. He's a nationalist. And uh, that's why I specify he's a hero to many Russians. But he's, um, you know, he is, you know, he, he would, he, you know, he's not a nationalist of the ilk that Putin uh, uh, is and has been, like, incredibly condemnatory We really don't know that, do we? (laughs) Uh, Well, I I don't think he is, you know, but, but, you know, that's just my kind of judgment. I don't don't think he is, and I do think that the speeches he's made, uh, sorry, the sort of communications we've had from prison over the last few days, in which he says that, has been saying that he does think that this sort of barbaric invasion will lead to the collapse of Russia is... He's actually sort of part Ukrainian, and I think that's sort of interesting and trying to understand him. But, you know, that generation never really had a chance of uh, being able to express itself uh, politically. And most of these people are now emigrating. There's a thing that's collapsing faster in Moscow than the Putin uh, regime, which I don't think is collapsing, I just think there are cracks in it is that liberal sociology that gave us the protest movement. These people are leaving. It's estimated that over 20,000 people have fled the country in the last few weeks. And I do think that when, you know, cracks deeper and challenges come to Putin's regime, it's far more likely to be uh, from the sort of aggrieved uh, special forces and uh, nationalists and uh, security chiefs that prosecuted this uh, botched war than it is to come from the sort of protest movement of yesteryear that I remember so fondly. Ben Judah, it's uh, really, you've, I think you've made us all think. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
And Ben is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Um, his piece in unheard.com is uh, his most recent reflection, but he also produced uh, Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell in and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin. It's a Yale University Press publication. And I might add just the UN yesterday, speaking of numbers of people who've left, the UN yesterday uh, said six and a half million people are currently displaced within Ukraine, nearly twice as many have, as have managed to flee the country. It certainly dwarfs the 3.3 um, million refugees who've entered mainly EU territory. So that's a huge number of, a huge amount of um, disruption.